1967 war was a multi-state Arab-Israeli conflict that convulsed the entire region. 1967 and the Six-Day War in June of that year changed the Middle East. It transformed its geopolitics, the ideological trends going on in the Middle East, and several of its borders, especially around Israel. I think 1967 still has this outsized role in how people construct and reconstruct their narratives. And again, some of it may not be true or accurate, but people have to build a story about a rise and fall. The war itself fundamentally changed the entire nature of the conflict and laid an entirely new foundation for how we go about resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that's been the, the challenge to diplomats, particularly American diplomats, ever since. And it so far has proved impossible to resolve. This is a special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. I'm Fred Dews. Between June 5th and June 10th, 1967, Israel and an Arab coalition of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan fought a war that Israelis call the Six-Day War and that Arabs generally call the June War. By war's end, Israel had captured territories on all three fronts. The Sinai Peninsula and Gaza Strip from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan. And with those territories, hundreds of thousands of people, primarily Palestinians, today numbering millions, came under Israeli control. Israel's rapid and decisive victory over the combined Arab armies transformed the Middle East and changed the geopolitics of the region in ways that challenge average citizens and policymakers to this day. The war's causes are many and complex, and the course of the battles in the air and on the ground are well documented. These can be studied elsewhere. In this episode, five Brookings scholars share their insights and expertise on a range of current policy issues that have roots in the conflict. These include how the war changed both Israel and its Arab neighbors, the transformation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the rise of political Islam as an alternative to Arab secular nationalism, particularly in Egypt, regional repercussions in peace deals, and the role of U.S. diplomacy. On the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war, our experts look back as they look forward to grapple with these issues and how the conflict's legacies continue to resonate today. This episode is part of a larger effort by the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings to offer perspectives on the war's anniversary, to ask what can be learned from it, and how these lessons inform our understanding about the current turmoil in the region. 1967 and the Six-Day War in June of that year changed the Middle East. It transformed its geopolitics, the ideological trends going on in the Middle East, and several of its borders, especially around Israel. The question we wanted to ask at the Center for Middle East Policy is what we might learn from that moment of upheaval in the regional order for another moment of regional upheaval today. And so many of our scholars at the Center and other parts of the Brookings Foreign Policy Program are writing pieces and commenting on different aspects of the region in 1967 and today. You can find them all together on our website. I'm Nathan Sachs. I'm the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. And in my own research, I focus on Israeli foreign policy and Israeli politics. The 1967 war really was the beginning of the end of a period of incredible turmoil in the Middle East that involved primarily conflicts between Arab states, between these sort of traditional monarchies like Saudi Arabia and these Arab authoritarian dictatorships, especially Egypt under Gamal Abdel Nasser. 
And this was a period called the Arab Cold War because it was such an intense conflict and it was viewed as so existential by both sides. I'm Tamara Wittes. I'm a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. 1967, Israel was a very small country. It had a population of less than 3 million. That's about Kansas today. It was a very young state, and it was a state officially at war and in practice at war with all its neighbors from all directions. Israelis feared, in other words, existential fear from conventional warfare, from Arab armies, armored corps crossing into Israel, from Egypt especially, but also from Syria, Jordan, troops perhaps from Lebanon, and Iraq sending forces through Jordan and Syria. In 1967, that changed. On the morning of June 5th, 1967, Israel's military strength consisted of over 260,000 troops, including reservists, plus 300 combat aircraft and 800 tanks. The combined forces of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria totaled over 540,000 ground troops over 950 combat aircraft, and over 2,500 tanks. What were the effects on Israel, the Arab states, and the region immediately following the conflict? Here's Natan Sachs again. Israel managed to defeat the combined armies of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, and push back the Egyptians across the whole Sinai Peninsula, three times the size of Israel, the Syrians in the Golan Heights, and the Jordanians out of the whole West Bank and East Jerusalem. In doing so, Israel acquired conventional strategic buffers against its enemies, and it changed the psyche of Israelis to a large degree. They felt suddenly that, conventionally at least, they could probably defend themselves. This had dramatic effects both on Israel and on the Arab world that surrounded it. Immediately after the war, the Israeli government convened, and it tried to decide what to do with the surprise acquisition of all this territory. Israel is not prepared to the acquisition of the Sinai or the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, Jerusalem, or the Golan Heights. None of them had been planned. The government decided initially in June 1967 to offer to return the whole Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights to Egypt and Syria, respectively. The Gaza Strip would be annexed to Israel, they thought. East Jerusalem would be combined with West Jerusalem in a united Jerusalem. And the West Bank, there they could not decide. And the government actually officially decided not to decide until a later date. That general scheme of which territories would be offered was revised more than once. And eventually we saw Israel return the whole Sinai Peninsula to Egypt as part of a full peace treaty in 1979. The Gaza Strip remained in question. It was not annexed to Israel. It now remains a Palestinian territory, as it's usually referred, along with the West Bank. The Golan Heights were negotiated over in continued negotiations with the Syrians, but these negotiations never reached a peace treaty. So the Golan Heights remains in Israeli hands. And in fact, in the early 80s, Israel even applied Israeli law to the Golan Heights. Israel did not apply its law, however, to the West Bank or to the Gaza Strip. They remained territories in question, occupied territories in Palestinian eyes, and territories in dispute in Israeli eyes. The war also brought to the fore the issue of the Palestinian people, the Arabs among the inhabitants of what was the British Mandate of Palestine until 1948. The question of Israeli-Palestinian relations became one of the defining legacies of the 1967 war. It's interesting to note that Israel occupied the West Bank not by design, but just essentially as a result of the war. There wasn't anywhere other than the Jordan River for the Israeli army to stop once they'd taken on the Jordanians. They had not expected 
war between Israel and Jordan. They'd not planned for it. The war was expected to be between Israel and Syria and Israel and Egypt. But then Jordan was forced to come in and they took Jerusalem, which had its own great value for Israel. But the West Bank was simply a kind of territorial acquisition that that wasn't designed, directed from the cabinet. And suddenly the Israelis found themselves in occupation of the Palestinians. The advantage was that for the first time in the history of Israel's relations with its neighbors, it came into contact with the Palestinians. The disadvantage was that it was a relationship between conquerors and vanquished, between governors and governed. And that occupation fundamentally distorted the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians and made it much more difficult to try to resolve the conflict between them. I'm Martin Nindick. I'm the executive vice president of the Brookings Institution. But I've had another life, which is as a diplomat trying to help resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And in that role, I've been twice ambassador to Israel and part of President Clinton's peace team. And then under President Obama, he and Secretary Kerry's special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. The war really affected Palestinians in very dramatic ways, uh, in two ways in particular. First, territorially, we now had the two remaining areas of what had been uh, the mandate of Palestine uh, before 1948 now under Israeli control, whereas the West Bank had previously been under Jordanian control and Gaza under Egyptian control. So in a way, it was sort of the reunification of what had been the territory of mandated Palestine. Khaled El-Gindi, fellow with the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. That created much more urgency for the Palestinians politically, which is where the real sea change came in as far as 1967 disabused Palestinians of uh, any hopes on relying on Arab regimes either to liberate Palestine or to address their most pressing concerns. And as a consequence, Palestinians decided to take matters into their own hands. And we saw really a rapid rise in the Fedayeen movement, the guerrilla groups that had been formed in the 1950s and 60s that now came to the fore and essentially took over the Palestine Liberation Organization and made it a truly Palestinian entity as opposed to one that had been controlled by Arab regimes. These groups were hugely popular uh, among the Palestinian population precisely because they were able to take matters into their own hands and gave Palestinians a real sense of ownership over their own political movement. El-Gindi notes the rise in international terrorism in the 1970s, in part led by the PLO. There was a downside, of course, to that, in that we saw more violence. A lot of these groups were involved in armed activity against Arab regimes, in particular the Jordanian monarchy, as well as raids on uh, Israeli targets, in some cases attacks on civilians. And so, on the one hand, Palestinians were now on the regional and global agenda, but with an association with violence and extremism that would really remain for quite some time after that. In addition to Israel's acquisition of territory, one of the other dramatic effects of Israel's swift victory over numerically larger Arab forces 
especially the defeat of Egypt's air and ground forces, was a sense of shock in the Arab world, of dashed expectations built up prior to 1967, largely by Egyptian President Nasser. And this leads up to the 1967 war, and there's a lot of optimism about what the Arabs can do militarily, and Nasser is building up the military and all of that. And that's why 1967 becomes so shocking for so many Egyptians and Arabs more broadly, because Nasser, in a sense, had raised expectations tremendously about what the Arabs were capable of, but then they got roundly defeated in what is aptly known also as the Six-Day War, because it ended very quickly. My name is Shadi Hamid. I'm a senior fellow here at the Brookings Institution. My parents were born and raised in Egypt and grew up under Nasser's Egypt. So growing up, they would tell me stories about, even though they weren't very political, how Nasser was just such an all-encompassing figure in their lives. And even when Nasser resigned, how so many Egyptians protested, calling for him to come back and to return as their president. And then when he died, how his funeral was really a national moment for Egyptians. And that was after the 1967 war. So there had already been kind of an erosion of the spirit around him, but still as a personality, he still symbolized something that was very meaningful to a lot of Egyptians, including my parents. In acquiring these territories, the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights, the war also changed Israeli society and how Israelis thought of themselves. Natan Sachs explains. The acquisition of the territories during the war had several very fundamental effects on Israeli society and politics. First, with the fear of conventional warfare receding, Israel had more room for other things. After 67, the economy grew quite dramatically, at least for a few years, and Israelis had a relative, though short, period of self-assuredness. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War, as Israelis call it, uh, that was reversed. Israelis suddenly felt that they had been in euphoria. They had been unrealistic about their security. But for a while, at least, Israelis acquired this sense of security. Society in Israel changed too. The West Bank, and especially East Jerusalem, have the holiest sites for Judaism. And suddenly, Judaism came back to the fore as part of Israeli society and the narrative of Zionism. Sachs explains that prior to 1967, the dominant strand of Zionism was secular, one that, as he puts it, emphasized nationalism and the national narrative of the Jewish people much more than the Jewish religion. That continued for a while after 67, but gradually religion came to play a more important role both in society and in politics, and especially religion of new brands. Judaism that was messianic, that saw Israeli control over the West Bank in particular, and especially East Jerusalem, as part of a divine plan, something that was important politically but also religiously. This was a fundamental transformation of the way Israelis considered Zionism, considered their own role in the world. Shadi Hamid makes a similar observation about how the 1967 war was an inflection point from pan-Arab nationalism to political Islam. You know, I think today we look at the Middle East and we think, oh, this is a pretty conservative and religious region of the world. But there was a period, primarily in the 1950s and 60s, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the great Egyptian nationalist leader, had come to power in the early 50s. And this is really the heyday 
of, if you want to call it secular nationalism or socialist nationalism, there's certainly a strong leftist component to it. And Nasser was also anti-American, anti-Western. The idea was that Arab nations had to come together as part of this pan-Arabist vision and reclaim their past glories. Islam was never out of the picture per se, and even Nasser himself went through a more religious period when he was younger, but it was much more about the nation and Egypt above all. Hamid points out that even the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, a nonviolent Islamist group that members of the Trump administration have pushed to be designated a foreign terrorist organization, actually had its heyday long before now and before the 1967 war. You know, we often think about the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood of really coming to the fore after the failures of 1967. And you really have this religious revival that gets into gear in the 1970s. Nasser destroyed or eradicated the Brotherhood in the 1950s and 60s, so that's part of the story. But the Muslim Brotherhood's heyday in some ways was actually in the 1940s, when they had as many as 500,000 to a million members at a time when the Egyptian population was still quite small, about only 20 million or so, which is a massive proportion of the population. So whenever we talk about the religious revival happening after the 1967 war, that's part of the story. But the Brotherhood was also quite powerful in the 1930s and 40s. But as in Israel, the war's outcome introduced a more prominent role for religion and public and political life, and a critique of the kind of pan-Arab nationalism championed by Nasser prior to the war. So I think it's really hard to overstate how much the 1967 defeat, how much of a shock it was because of these raised expectations. And it sort of undermines the whole premise. I mean, if Nasser has been spending the last 15 years building up this idea of pan-Arab unity, of building up the Egyptian military, and then all they can really get out of it is a massive defeat at the hands of the Israelis, that's going to shatter a lot of preconceived notions about the nationalist project. So I think after that, there was a sense that among many Arabs that, hey, they had tried out a secular nationalism. They had tried out socialism. Those projects failed. What was left to try? And one of the things that was left was political Islam or Islamism. In other words, the idea that Islam and Islamic law should play a more central role in public life. And this is also tied to an idea which we really have from the very foundation of Islam, this idea that if you are true to God, if you're a good Muslim, you will be rewarded with not just success in the next life, but success in this life on the battlefield. And it's no mistake that, at least from the standpoint of many Muslims, that the great conquests that were happening in the 7th and 8th centuries at the very early moments of Islam, they were happening as people had a kind of religious fervor. And they were also gaining a lot of territory. So that link between religiosity and temporal success is a very interesting theme that returns in light of the 1967 defeat, where a lot of Muslims are saying, hey, maybe we have to turn back to God, and that's the only way we can really fight the Israelis or regain our past glories.
the war itself fundamentally changed the entire nature of the conflict and laid an entirely new foundation for how we go about resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict as we know it today. Khaled El-Gindi? In the first instance, it introduced a new set of guidelines or terms of reference for how we resolve the conflict embodied in Resolution 242, which contains the Land for Peace formula. Previously, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the guidelines for resolving the conflict were based on UN General Assembly Resolution 181, which was the 1947 partition plan, and UN Resolution 194, which was enshrined the right of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes in what became Israel. So up until 1967, those were the bases of the peace process. And it was primarily a UN-led process. The United States clearly was involved and was a major actor, but it was really only after 1967 that the United States replaced the UN as the primary arbiter in the conflict and has remained so ever since. Another impact of the conflict was to underscore or lead to a greater awareness of the Palestinian dimension of the conflict, which had essentially been buried since 1948. But it did that in a rather ad hoc and conflicted way. On the one hand, there was increased appreciation for the fact that Palestinians were in many ways the heart of the conflict, but at the same time there was this association with violence and terrorism that came with that awareness because of the phenomenon of Palestinian political violence that was quite prominent in the late 1960s and early 70s. So it was really kind of a double-edged sword for both the Palestinian leadership and for the United States. Former Ambassador to Israel Martin Indyk explains that UN Security Council Resolution 242, which was adopted unanimously by the Security Council in November 1967, became the basic formula for all subsequent policy with regard to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Well, the 67 war was like a cursed blessing for diplomats and I think for Israel as well. It put Israel in occupation of territory that could be used for negotiating peace agreements with its neighbors. And that was the essence of UN Resolution 242, which was passed in the Security Council after the Six-Day War and provided the basis for negotiations provided for direct negotiations, provided for the return of territories occupied in 67, but it didn't specify whether it should be all the territories or some of the territories, but it did have the principle of the inadmissibility of the retention of territories by force. So there was a lot of ambiguity in that that left room for the diplomats to try to negotiate deals. And when you look back over the 50 years, you see that that even though there were wars in between, most notably the 1973 Yom Kippur War and also wars in Lebanon, wars in Gaza. Nevertheless, there was a kind of steady progress uh, based on Resolution 242 in which Israel exchanged all of the Sinai for peace with Egypt and then parts of territory along the Jordan border for peace with Jordan. And we engaged in intensive negotiations with the Israelis and the Syrians that would have led to, if they'd culminated in a peace agreement, to Israel withdrawing to the 67 line with minor 
border rectifications there off the Golan Heights. And that essentially is the question of what happens in the West Bank. El-Gindi explains, however, why Resolution 242 is a problem from the Palestinian perspective. Resolution 242, which was passed shortly after the war, laid out the formula that still guides American and international policy with regard to the conflict uh, right up until today. And it's embodied in the so-called land for peace formula. That is, Israel withdraws from occupied Arab lands in exchange for peace and recognition from the Arab side. The problem from the Palestinian perspective is that 242 did not address the Palestinians. It sort of dealt with the conflict as one between sovereign states, Arab states, Egyptian territory had been occupied in the Sinai, Syrian territory, and from the standpoint of Israel and the United States, the West Bank was Jordanian. And so this was seen as a conflict between states. And so the Palestinians were addressed merely as a refugee problem, quote-unquote. And that omission, in addition to a lack of any reference to Palestinian self-determination, is what prompted the PLO to reject Resolution 242. And it took several more years for the PLO finally to accept Resolution 242 and recognize Israel, which it did in 1988. And then it took another dozen or so years for the United States to accept the idea of Palestinian statehood. And so that's kind of where we are now, where we have a general consensus politically among Israelis, Palestinians, Arab states, Europe, the United States, all of the major actors and stakeholders around a two-state solution, but we haven't quite gotten there. More on the two-state idea in a moment, but first, important events transpired in the decade following the 1967 war and included an expanded and increasingly essential U.S. role in regional diplomacy. In October 1973, on Yom Kippur, an Arab coalition of Egypt and Syria launched a successful surprise attack and overwhelmed Israeli positions in the Sinai Peninsula and Golan Heights, still occupied by Israeli forces following the 1967 war. Despite significant early successes, Israeli forces managed to counterattack, eventually holding on to much of the territory, but at a much greater cost than six years previous. In 1978, U.S. President Jimmy Carter brought Egyptian President Anwar el-Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin to Camp David, where the two adversaries signed framework agreements that led, in 1979, to a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Tamara Wittes looks at this period and the critical American role. When you think about Israel and securing it a place in the region, which was, you know, in part what the 1967 war was about, who are the major states in the region with whom Israel has to reckon, with whom it has to come to terms? In 1967, it was Egypt, no question. And the Camp David Peace Accords, which took Egypt off the table for future Arab-Israeli war, transformed the Arab-Israeli conflict and really made it much more manageable and helped put the focus on the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Historically, the American role has been essential. And despite a lot of questioning today about the American role, I think it remains essential. Look, back in the 1970s, it was... Egypt's shift to the West 
the decline of Soviet influence in the Middle East. That's part of what made Arab-Israeli peacemaking possible. And the United States under President Nixon and then President Carter was absolutely essential to that movement. President Carter's personal mediation of negotiations between Egyptian President Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Begin was essential. And through the years since 1993, since the first Israel-PLO agreement, the Declaration of Principles, American mediation has been central to the Israeli-Palestinian peace process as well. Martin Indyk explains why the United States became much more engaged in the Arab-Israeli conflict following the 1967 war. After the 67 war, Israel was in occupation of the entire Sinai Peninsula up to the Suez Canal, which was a strategic waterway that connected Europe and the Mediterranean to the east and was of great geostrategic consequence. It was also in occupation of the West Bank and the Golan Heights. That required American engagement in the effort to try to resolve the conflict. America developed an interest after the Six-Day War in a resolution of this conflict, not just a management of it, because it needed to balance its support for Israel's survival and well-being as the Jewish and democratic state and its need to have good relations with Israel's Arab adversaries, who many of whom happened to have large amounts of oil under their land that they controlled. So U.S. diplomacy after 67 was driven by a sense that the only way that we could reconcile competing interests between Israel and the Arabs was to play an active role in bringing them to peace. Indic elaborates on this U.S.-led diplomacy, emphasizing the land for peace formulation that has been so important since the 1967 war. And the basis for negotiating that peace appeared to be there in the sense that Israel could give back the territories in exchange for peace with its neighbors. And that was the essential bargain that the United States tried to develop, an exchange of territories for peace. And indeed, over the years, the United States played a critical role, first of all, in the disengagement agreements that Henry Kissinger, as Secretary of State, negotiated after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which established this idea of Israel giving up territory for pieces of peace. And then Jimmy Carter came in, built on those foundations, and secured the Israel-Egypt peace treaty, which was the ultimate vindication of that concept of territories for peace because Israel withdrew from the entire Sinai Peninsula in stages in exchange for peace treaty with Egypt and normalization with Egypt which has has lasted now since 1973 through all sorts of troubles and difficulties and changes in leadership. On the other side, Jordan and the Golan Heights, the same idea was introduced, certainly in the case of Israel and Syria, and negotiations, particularly during the Clinton administration, which I was involved in, led to an essential deal being worked out In the end, it wasn't consummated because Assad passed away and history moved on. But the essential elements of the deal were there. And again, it was full withdrawal from Golan Heights with some minor adjustments, very minor adjustments, uh, to the 1967 lines in exchange for full peace 
normalization of relations and security arrangements, just like in the case of Israel and Egypt. In the case of Israel and Jordan, it was a little different because the territory that had been under Jordanian control, the West Bank, Jordan ceded to the Palestinians' responsibility. And so it was much easier to draw the border between Israel and Jordan along the Jordan River. There was much less territory that needed to be exchanged. But even there, there was a minor adjustment and then normalization of relations. So in each of those three cases, it was possible to resolve the conflict by negotiating exchange of territory for peace. Wittes explains how subsequent peace deals between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors helped narrow the focus of the Arab-Israeli conflict to the question of the Palestinians. After 1967, 73, the Camp David Accords, the Arab-Israeli conflict began to narrow in scope Palestinian nationalism and Palestinian demands for self-determination came to the diplomatic fore. And so with the conclusion of Egyptian-Israeli peace, Israeli-Jordanian peace, it's clear now that Israeli-Palestinian peace, a final agreement between these two peoples, is the prerequisite for a full Arab-Israeli reconciliation and for normalizing Israel's status in the region. Indic adds, In the case of the Palestinians, it was a lot more complicated, simply because each side claimed the same land. There's a significant body of Israelis on the right wing, which have had considerable influence over Israeli governments, which regarded uh, this territory in the West Bank as part of the land that God gave to Israel. And Palestinians saw the West Bank and Gaza as the land on which they could establish their independent Palestinian state. And reconciling those two requirements and dealing with the competing claims in Jerusalem became much more difficult. The basic principle of territory for peace was still there, but you had to also resolve the issue of what would happen to the Palestinian refugees what would happen to Jerusalem and in particular the holy sites where the Israelis claimed the Western Wall and the Temple Mount because those are the holiest places in Judaism. But the Palestinians claim the same area, what they call the Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount equivalent where the third holiest mosque in Islam, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, is located. So you had a combination there, not just of territorial claims, sovereignty claims, but religious claims competing. And so it became a much bigger challenge to deal with those issues. And frankly, UN Security Council Resolution 242, which established the basis for the other peace deals, never referred to the Palestinians except as a refugee problem. And so there hasn't really been an agreed basis for negotiating an Israeli-Palestinian deal and that has really handicapped the negotiations. Wittes offers this emphatic coda about the American role. There's fundamental reasons why America plays such an important role. First, because it remains the main security guarantor for the entire region. And that means that all of the major states in the region look toward the United States to play a leadership role. Number two, Specifically, America's role in supporting Israeli security and defense capability, the close American-Israeli defense partnership, building new technologies together, for example, anti-missile technology, intelligence sharing, 
Arab states and the Palestinians know that for Israel to feel secure enough to make territorial concessions and make peace, Israel needs that strong partnership with the United States. And that means that an American role in negotiating peace is needed to give Israel the reassurance to make concessions. The two-state solution envisions an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel, based largely in the area called the West Bank, a large bulge of territory west of the Jordan River, and the Gaza Strip by the Mediterranean Sea. The West Bank is, to this day, since the 1967 war, under Israeli military control, and although populated by close to two million Palestinians, now also includes hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers. Natan Sachs explains that after 1967, the terms of Israeli politics changed from revolving around economic concerns to having the question of the Palestinian territories as the central axis. Today, if you say right-wing in Israel, what you mean is hawkish about the Palestinian territories, about concessions of territory to Arab neighbors. That's what right-wing means. It doesn't mean small government. It doesn't mean low taxes. It means hawkish. And left-wing does not necessarily mean socialist or large government. It means more moderate or more dovish on the question of territories. This has fundamental uh, effects to this day. If we think of how politics are arranged, what coalitions are possible, about who can be elected and what constraints are put on a prime minister, it's always about this fundamental dimension. There are other dimensions that compete, social issues, economic issues, of course. They're very important to Israelis as well. But trumping them all is the question of the territories. Here's Martin Indyk again. Well, when we look back over the 50 years, history does not stand still for any person. And what happened in the West Bank for those 50 years of Israeli occupation is that the settler movement grew up with an ideological conviction that this was the land that God gave to the Jews and could never be given up for any purposes, had to be retained. And indeed, biblically, this is the land of Israel, Judea and Samaria. And then the settlement enterprise took over, and now there are over 300,000 Israelis who have settled in the West Bank. On the other hand, the Palestinians have developed a national aspiration that was fueled by the occupation and the resistance to the occupation, often violent resistance. And as a consequence... Palestinians developed an aspiration for a state in the very territory that the Israelis were now settling because they regarded it as their land. And so the conflict took on a very different dimension over these 50 years in which the only way to resolve the conflict effectively was to separate the Israelis from the Palestinians, but how could you separate them now that they were living cheek by jowl? And that's been the the challenge to diplomats, particularly American diplomats, ever since. And it so far has proved impossible to resolve. Sachs addresses this major problem, what he calls a dilemma of what to do with the territories, in particular, the West Bank. When Israelis think about this conundrum, the dilemma of what to do with the territories, whether to grant citizenship to the Palestinians who live there and then put in jeopardy the idea of a Jewish-majority democracy, maybe the hardest problem, the hardest issue that is brought up usually by the international community is that of Jewish settlements, Israeli settlements in the West Bank and formerly in the Gaza Strip as well. Here it is exactly where Israeli politics 
come to a head with this fundamental question. On the right in particular, Israelis want to incorporate much of the West Bank, in particular the holier parts of the West Bank or the more sacred parts from a Jewish perspective. And they have been pushing for settlements since very early on after the war in different parts of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But of course, for the world and for the Palestinians who see the West Bank and East Jerusalem as under negotiation, these settlements seem to be an obstacle, a tangible obstacle for future partition and a future Palestinian state. Al-Gindi suggests that 50 years later, some Palestinians are even abandoning the idea of a two-state solution. We are now 50 years on, since really 2000, we've had American acceptance of the idea of a Palestinian state, in other words, a two-state solution. So we've had a very protracted process in which uh, both the American side and the Palestinian side have arrived at the necessary conditions for a two-state solution. Since then, we've been in a state really of paralysis. We've not been able to reach a two-state solution. And so one of the consequences on the Palestinian side now, after all these years of failed negotiations and an inability to end the occupation and to create a Palestinian state, a lot of Palestinians are abandoning the idea of a two-state solution. That idea hasn't quite matured in the form of any critical mass. There are no real major political actors that are advocating, for example, a one-state solution. But there certainly is disaffection with the peace process and a sense that the occupation, which by definition, any military occupation is supposed to be permanent, but we're now half a century into this occupation, and a lot of people are beginning to rethink the old paradigm, the old idea of partition of the territory into two separate states, and also beginning to rethink even the terms of reference for how we go about resolving this conflict. What does this mean for the current U.S. administration and continued efforts at Israeli-Palestinian accord? Al-Gindi continues. And I think that it really poses a major challenge for the current administration, which has been reluctant to talk about the occupation. Unlike the Obama administration and before that, the George W. Bush administration, which had very explicitly called for an end to the Israeli occupation as part of a two-state solution. So far, we haven't heard this administration refer to the occupation or even publicly really to refer to a two-state solution. It's still early, obviously, in the administration, but American policymakers, as they get deeper into attempting to crack this issue, are going to have to look at not just how they salvage a two-state solution, which looks increasingly unlikely given the realities on the ground. We now have something close to 600,000 Israeli settlers living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, that, of course, were not there in 1967. And so there's been a physical and demographic change in the occupied territories as well as a, a political one. But the focus now is not just on how we salvage the idea of two states, but how do we understand an occupation that is looking increasingly permanent? The Tan Sachs calls the temporary status of the West Bank and Gaza Strip that has lasted for 50 years the bane of Israeli political existence. 
and emphasizes the particular problem of the status of Jerusalem. And this temporary status, one that includes military rule or occupation, has lasted for 50 years now. This, in a sense, is the bane of Israeli political existence. What to do with the territories? If they are swallowed into Israel, that would mean that the Palestinians who live there would also be swallowed into Israel, and Israel would have roughly half-Jewish, half-not-Jewish population. This would go counter to the very idea of the creation of a Jewish-majority democracy in Israel. This question, in other words, guides the way Israelis think about their future and, in a sense, poses the most difficult trouble for Israeli leaders in what to do with the territories going forward. Jerusalem, in some regards, is the hardest territory of all. In one respect, for the Israelis, it's the easiest. It's the most in consensus. The holiest places for Judaism are in what is East Jerusalem. They were conquered by Jordan in the war in 1948 and remained in Jordanian rule until 1967, when Israelis could finally return to visit East Jerusalem. But of course, from the Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, and world perspective, this is also the heart of the conflict as well. The same sites that are holy to Jews, some of them adjacent, are also very holy to Islam. And in this regard, this remains the hardest point of the negotiations, and one that is most contentious in Israeli politics. The 1967 war between Israel and its Arab neighbors was a continuation of earlier conflicts about which people had the right to land in the region, which historical and religious claims were ascendant. And it set in motion five decades of conflict and diplomacy involving not only the states in the region, but also the United States, the Soviet Union, and now Russia, and other global actors. I think 1967 still has this outsized role in how people construct and reconstruct their narratives. And again, some of it may not be true or accurate, but people have to build a story about a rise and fall. So I think 1967 sort of plays this this very convenient role, especially for Islamists or even conservative Muslims more generally, in making the case that religion is the salvation, that something was lost in this period of Arab nationalism and secularism and socialism, the idea that these were all Western ideologies which were being appropriated, but they weren't quite the right fit for Arab populations and Arab nations. So I think 1967 can sort of be seen as an inflection point and a turning point And it's interesting, too, that many Islamist leaders today, when they were younger in the 1960s, and even in my interviews with them, I was sometimes struck by the number of them that really bought into the Nasserist discourse and were basically, in some sense, either socialists, leftists, or neo-Marxists, at least for part of their youth in the 1960s and, and 50s, let's say, But then 1967 allows them to move away from that history. So as they're growing and maturing intellectually, that for them pushes them to reconsider their socialist leanings and to turn more towards religion. Khaled El-Gindi reflects on recent attempts by the U.S. to broker Israeli-Palestinian peace and the continuing legal, political, and moral problems of what he calls the increasingly permanent occupation. John Kerry, uh, before he left his post under the previous administration, referred to the possibility of Israel uh, becoming an apartheid state. 
the idea of having a group of people who are under military rule and essentially have no say in how they are governed. They are not citizens of Israel, and yet they are ruled by Israel. And so that poses a set of legal and moral problems for this administration. So that has been one response, which a lot of Palestinians have adopted, and they simply refer to the occupation as a form of apartheid. Another response to this dilemma has been to simply deny the existence of the occupation altogether. And we see that very clearly, for example, among members of Congress and particularly Republican members of Congress who have criticized President Obama for using the word occupation, even though that is uh, objectively the legal and political status of the territories. And so we seem to be entering a kind of state of denial about the occupation rather than attempting to deal with it. But you know, that may be politically acceptable in certain circles in the United States, but it still leaves the question of what we do with four million stateless Palestinians who live under foreign military rule. So eventually that has to be resolved, and simply denying the existence of the occupation is not going to cut it. For the time being, the Trump administration has managed to avoid the issue. On President Trump's recent trip to the region, it was very tall on symbolism and promises and hopes, but very short on actual plans for how we go about achieving a peaceful settlement. So really, the Trump administration can only avoid the issue, I think, for so long before it really has to come face to face with how we deal with the occupation, either resolving it in favor of a two-state solution or some other reasonable and equitable resolution that doesn't leave four million Palestinians stateless. Tamara Wittes looks ahead to possible new opportunities in the region. So today, again, 50 years later, we have a region in turmoil. It is victim to intense geopolitical competition, this time between on the one hand, Sunni Arab states, and on the other hand, Iran, and also a conflict between sort of traditional governments and the forces of political Islam, both in more moderate and very extreme varieties, violent varieties. So these forces are now convulsing the region. And just as in the 1960s, that turmoil creates opportunities for new kinds of alignments. The fact is that many Arab states in Israel today share common threats from Iran, from ISIS and al-Qaeda, these extremist groups. And so these threats are bringing them together. I'm not sure that they yet have a common vision for the region that they would like to be in, but there are certainly new opportunities here. Natan Sachs compares Israelis' existential fears of 50 years ago compared to today. If in 1967 the fear of conventional forces crossing over to Israel and destroying Israel, a fear that was revived six years later in the 1973 war in a very real way when Egypt and Syria surprised Israel in October 73. Today, the fears in Israel are different. Today, Israel is not less than 3 million. It is over 8 million. It is militarily and technologically and economically far stronger than it was in 1967. Israel today is officially an advanced economy, a member of the OECD, something that would have been a distant dream to anyone thinking back in the 60s, 70s, or indeed in the 80s. Today, the fear is not of conventional forces. 
Peace with Egypt means that the largest, most formidable neighbor is at peace with Israel. Syria is consuming itself in a horrific civil war. The Iraqi military that used to be a threat to Israel was destroyed in the first Gulf War in 1991. Today, Israelis fear other things. They fear unconventional warfare, in particular terrorism and threats of rockets, ballistic rockets, short range from the Gaza Strip, medium range from Lebanon in the hands of Hezbollah. And they fear, of course, something else, which is nuclear weapons, uh, especially in the hands of Iran. Israelis still have these existential fears. A lot of what it does is still guided by issues of security and fundamental questions of safety. But they are fundamentally different than the ones in 67, where the fear was waking up one morning and discovering that Egyptian tanks were crossing over and might reach Tel Aviv. Finally, Martin Indyk reflects on lessons learned from his decades of involvement in the Arab-Israeli conflict and helping to bring about Middle East peace. For me, the most important lesson is that it takes three to tango when it comes to resolving the Arab-Israeli and Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. That American willpower alone and American diplomatic ingenuity alone cannot resolve this conflict. I think it's a lesson that Donald Trump needs to take on board. It requires two other partners to this, Israeli and a Palestinian partner in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Where we had partners who were committed to making peace, who had the courage to do so and the ability to lead their people to peace, with American direct engagement, we had peace treaties between Anwar Sadat of Egypt, Menachem Begin of Israel and Jimmy Carter of the United States, between Yitzhak Rabin of Israel and King Hussein of Jordan and Bill Clinton. And you would have had it if we'd been able to consummate the deal between Hafez al-Assad of Syria and any one of five prime ministers in Israel that were ready to make the deal and the American presidents at the time from Bill Clinton through George W. Bush. But when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian front, it's been very complicated because essentially now we're in a situation where the leadership and the politics are not conducive to resolving the conflict. And so American willpower alone cannot change that. The second lesson I learned from engagement in the diplomacy over so many years is that even though American willpower alone is not enough to resolve the conflict, it is essential that the United States get caught trying, that we should never give up on the effort to try to resolve the conflict. Because in the Middle East, when you push on one door, another door opens and another opportunity will emerge. And you can never predict that because from an American perspective, you never really understand how your pushing is going to impact the calculations of the players in the region. But it's very important to keep pushing. This episode of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast is one part of a wider project sponsored by the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. Along with other scholars from the institution, the Center scholars are offering their perspectives on the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war in blog posts and videos that you can find on our website, brookings.edu cmep. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo. 
who found all of this episode's sound effects on Audio Jungle. Special thanks to Anna Newby and Sean Dar for helping me put this episode together. And my profound thanks to all the scholars, Khaled El-Gindi, Shadi Hamid, Martin Indyk, Natan Sachs, and Tamara Wittes for offering their time and expertise. Vanessa Sauter is our producer. Design and web support come courtesy of Jessica Pavone, Erica Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. Thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. I'm Fred Dews. 